Chapter Seven of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark DeSanzo. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy by Ruth Putnam. Chapter Seven: Liege and Its Fate, fourteen sixty-five to fourteen sixty-seven when we have finished here we shall make a fine beginning against those villains the liegeois thus wrote the count's secretary on october eighteenth charles had no desire to rest on the laurels won before paris to another city he now turned his attention to liege which owed nothing whatsoever to burgundy before the days when the buried treasures of the soil filled the air with smoke the valley where liege lies was a lovely spot tradition tells how in the sixth century monolf bishop of tongres as he made a progress through his diocese was attracted by the beauties of the site where a few hovels then clustered near the meuse after looking down from the heights to the river's banks for a brief space the bishop turned to his followers and said as if uttering a prophecy quote, here is a place created by god for the salvation of many faithful souls one day a prosperous city shall flourish here here i will build the chapel dedicated to cosmo and damien the promised chapel became a shrine which attracted many pilgrims who returned to their various homes with glowing tales of the beautiful and fertile valley little by little others came who did not leave and by the seventh century when bishop lambert sat in the sea of tongres liege was a small town an active and loving shepherd was this lambert he gave himself no rest but travelled continually from one church to another in his diocese to look after the needs of his flock he was a fearless prelate too and his words of well-deserved rebuke to the frankish pepin for a lawless deed excited the wrath of a certain noble accessory to the act trouble ensued and lambert was slain as he knelt before the altar in monolf's chapel at liege absorbed in prayer the pious man did not hear the servants calls holy lambert holy lambert come to our aid words that later became a war cry when the bishop was exalted into the patron saint of the town not until the thirteenth century however when the episcopal see was finally established at liege was lambert's successor virtually lay overlord of the region as well as bishop of liege monolf's little chapel had given way to a mighty church dedicated to the canonized bishop lambert the ecclesiastical state became almost autonomous the episcopal authority being restricted without the walls only by the distant emperor and still more distant pope within the walls the same authority had by no means a perfectly free hand there were certain features in the constitution of liege which differentiated it from its sister towns in the netherlands municipal affairs were conducted in a singularly democratic manner there was no distinction between the greater and lesser guilds and within these organizations the franchise was given to the most ignorant apprentice had he only fulfilled the simple condition of attaining his fifteenth year moreover the naturalization laws were very easy newcomers were speedily transformed into citizens and enjoyed eligibility to office as well as the franchise the tenure of office being for one year only there was opportunity for frequent participation in public affairs an opportunity not neglected by the community the bishop was of course not one of the civic officers chosen by this liberal franchise 
he was elected by the chapter of saint lambert subject to papal and imperial ratification for the two spheres of his jurisdiction but in the exercise of his function there were many restrictions to his free administration which papal and imperial sanction together were unable to remove a bishop prince of liege could make no change in the laws without the consent of the estates and he could administer justice only by means of the regular tribunals every edict had to be countersigned when there was an issue between overlord and people the question was submitted to the shepherds or superior judges who before they gave their opinion consulted the various charters which had been granted from time to time and which were not allowed to become dead letters a permanent committee of the three orders supervised the executive and the administration of the laws these twenty-two received an appeal from the meanest citizen and the liege proverb in his own home the poor man is king was very near the possible truth yet the wheels of government were by no means perfect in their running many were the conflicts between the different members of the state and broils with the character of civil war in miniature were of frequent occurrence the submergence of the aristocratic element the nobles destroyed a natural balance of power between the bishop prince and the people the commons exerted power beyond their intelligence annual elections party contests headed by rival demagogues kept the capital and to a lesser extent the smaller towns of the little state in continuous commotion the ecclesiastical origin of the community was evident at all points of daily life the cathedral of st lambert was the pride of the city its chapter consisting of sixty canons took the place held by the aristocratic element in the other towns in the cathedral the holy standard of st lambert was suspended at the outbreak of war this was taken down and carried to the door by the clergy in solemn procession there it was unfurled and delivered to the commander of the civic militia mounted on a snow-white steed when he received the precious charge he swore to defend it with his life one object of popular veneration was this standard another was the perron an emblem of the civic organization this was a pillar of gilded bronze its top representing a pineapple surmounted by a cross this stood on a pedestal in the centre of the square where was the ville or city hall in front of the perron were proclaimed all the ordinances issued by the magistrates or the decrees adopted by the people in general assembly on these occasions the tocsin was rung the deans of the guilds would hasten out with their banners and plant them near the perron as rallying points for the various guild members who poured out from forge workshop and factory until the square was filled there were two powerful weapons whereby the bishop prince might enforce his will in opposition to that of his subjects did the latter become too obstreperous he could suspend the court of the shepherds and he could pronounce an interdict of the church which caused the cessation of all priestly functions when this interdict was in action civil suits between burghers could be adjudged by the municipal magistrates but no criminals could be arrested or tried the elementary principles of an organized society were thrown into confusion still worse confusion resulted from the bishop's last resort as prince of the church an interdict caused the church bells to be silent the church doors to be closed the celebration of the rites of baptism of marriage of burial ceased the fear of such cessation was potent in its restraint unless the populace were too far enraged to be moved by any consideration while the burgundian dukes extended their sway over one portion of netherland territory after another this little dominion maintained its complete independence of them 
the fact that its princes were elective protected it from lapsing through heritage to the duke who had been so neatly proven heir to his diverse childless kinsfolk it was a rich little vineyard without his pale they were clever people those liegeois their walloon language is a species of french with many peculiarities showing frankish admixture the race was probably a mixed one too but its acquired characteristics made a very different person from a hollander a frisian or a fleming though there was a certain resemblance to the latter in fourteen sixty five not yet exploited were the wonderful resources of coal and minerals which now glow above and below the furnace fires until from a distance liege looks like a very inferno but the people were industrious and energetic in their crafts it was a country of skilled workmen the city of liege is accredited with one hundred thousand inhabitants at this epoch and the numbers reported slain in the various battles in which the town was involved run into the thousands in fourteen fifty six philip of burgundy encouraged by his success in the diocese of utrecht obtained a certain ascendancy over the affairs of liege by interfering in the election of a bishop there was no natural vacancy at the moment john of heinsberg was the incumbent a very pleasant prelate with conciliatory ways he loved amusement and gay society pleasures more easily obtainable in philip's court than in his own and his agreeable host found means of persuading him to resign all the cares of his see then the enterprising duke proceeded to place his own nephew louis of bourbon upon the vacant episcopal throne this nephew was an eighteen-year-old student at the university of louvain destitute of a single qualification for the office proposed nevertheless all difficulties technical and general were ignored and a papal dispensation enabled the canonate even to dispense with the formality of taking orders attired in scarlet with a feathered burgundian cap on his head louis made his entry into his future capital and was duly enthroned as bishop prince in spite of his manifest unfitness for the place nor did he prove a pleasant surprise to his people better than the promise of his youth as some reckless princes have done on the contrary ignorant sensuous extortionate he was soon at drawn swords with his subjects after a time he withdrew to hui where he indulged in gross pleasures while he attempted to check the rebellious citizens of his capital by trying some of the measures of coercion used by his predecessors as a last resort liege was lashed into a state of fury matters dragged on for a long time the people appealed to colonia to the papal legate to the pope and to the quote unquote, pope better informed but no redress was given philip continued to protect the bishop and none dared put themselves in opposition to him finally the people turned to louis the eleventh for aid their appeal was heard and the king's agent arrived in the city just as one of the bishop's interdicts was about to be enforced an interdict too endorsed by a papal bull threatening the usual anathema if the provisions were not obeyed it was the moment for a demagogue and one appeared in the person of Reis de la Riviere, lord of hears on july fifth fourteen sixty five there was to be unbroken silence in all sacred edifices hears and his followers proclaimed that every priest who refused to chant should be thrown into the river mass was said under those unpeaceful and unspiritual conditions and the presence of the french envoys gave new heart to the bishop's opponents a treaty was signed between the liegeois and louis wherein mutual pledges were made that no peace should be concluded with burgundy in which both parties were not included it was a solemn pledge but it did not hamper louis when he signed the treaty of conflans 
whose articles contained not a single reference to the Ligeois. Meanwhile, it chanced that the first report of the Battle of Montlhéry reaching Liège gave the victory to Louis, a report that spurred on the Ligeois to carry their acts of open hostility to their neighbor, still farther afield. The other towns of the church state were infected by an anti-Burgundian sentiment. In Dinant, this feeling was high, and there was, moreover, a manifestation of special animosity against the Count of Charolais. A rabble marched out of the city to the walls of Bovigne, a town of Namur, loyal to Burgundy, carrying a stuffed figure with a cowbell round its neck. Certain well-known emblems of Burgundy on a tattered mantle showed that this represented Charles of Burgundy. With rude words, the crowd declared that they were going to hang the effigy, as his master, the King of France, had already hanged Count Charles in reality. Further, they said that he was no count at all, but the son of their old Bishop Heinsberg. They went so far as to suspend the effigy on a gallows, and then riddled it with arrows and left it dangling like a scarecrow in sight of the citizens of Bovigne. The actual contents of the treaty made at Conflans did not reach Liège until messages from Louis had assured them that he had been mindful of their interests in making his own terms, assurances, however, coupled with advice to make peace with their good friend the Duke. But there speedily came later information that the only mention of Liège in the new treaty was an apology that Louis had ever made friends in that city. The rebels lost heart at once. Without the king they had no confidence in their own efforts envoys were dispatched to philip who refused to answer their humble requests for pardon until his son could decide what punishment the principality deserved nor was much delay to be anticipated before an answer would be forthcoming charles hastened to liege direct from paris not pausing even to greet his father by the third week of january he was encamped between st trond and tongres where a fresh deputation from liege found him these envoys between eighty and a hundred were well armed chiefly because they feared attacks from their anti-peace fellow-citizens they found charles flushed by his recent achievement of bringing king louis to his way of thinking his army too was a stronger body than when it left the netherlands the troops were more skilled from their experience and elated at what they counted their success more capable too of acting as one body under the guidance of a resolute leader now inclined to despise councils with free discussion the count's quick temper had gained him weight but it had made him feared the slightest breach of discipline brought a thundercloud on his face if we may believe one authority he himself was often so lacking in discipline that he would strike an officer with a baton and once at least he killed the soldier with his own hand his audience with the envoys resulted in a treaty of which certain articles were so harsh that the messengers were insulted when the report was made in liege only eleven out of thirty-two guilds voted to accept all the articles a certain noble on pleasant terms with the count offered to carry the unpopular document back to him to ask for a modification of the harsh terms by this time the weather was severe charles's troops were in need of repose and it seemed prudent to avoid hostility if possible charles revoked the objectionable clauses in consideration of an increase of the war indemnity with this change the treaty was accepted and a piteous peace it was indeed for the proud folk of liege instead of owing allegiance to emperor and to pope alone as free imperial citizens they agreed to recognize the burgundian dukes as hereditary protectors of liege when it was desired burgundian troops could march freely across the territory 
Burgundian coins were declared valid at Burgundian values, no Liège fortresses were to menace Burgundian marches, and unqualified obedience was pledged to the new overlords. The same terms were conceded to all the rebel towns alike, except to Dinant. The story of the personal insult to himself and his mother had reached the Count's ears, and he was not inclined to ignore the circumstance. His further action was, however, deferred. January 24, 1466, is the final date of the treaty, and after its conclusion, Charles ordered a review of his forces, a review that almost culminated in a pitched battle between army and citizens of St. Trond, and then on January 31st, the Count returned to Brussels, where there was a great display of Burgundian etiquette, before the Duke embraced his victorious son. Piteous as was the peace for Liège and the province at large, still more piteous was the lot of Dinant, which alone was excluded from the participation in the treaty. Her fate remained uncertain for months. Other affairs occupied the Count of Charolais until late in the summer of 1466. Time had quickly proven that Louis, well freed from the Allies pressing up to the gates of Paris, was in very different temper from Louis, ill at ease under their strenuous demands. Not only had he withdrawn his promises in regard to the duchy conferred on his brother, but he had begun taking other measures, ostensibly to prepare against a possible English invasion, which alarmed his cousin of Burgundy for the undisturbed possession of his recently recovered towns on the Somme. Excited by the rumors of Louis' purposes, Charles dispatched the following letter from Namur. Quote, Monseigneur, I recommend myself very humbly to your good grace, and beg to inform you, Monseigneur, that recently I have been advised of something very surprising to me. Moreover, I am now put beyond doubt, considering the source of my information. It is with much regret that I communicate it to you, when I remember all the good words you have given to me this year, orally and in writing. Monseigneur, it is evident that there has been some agreement between your people and the English, and that the matter has been so well worked that you have consented, as I have heard, to yield them the land of Caux, Rouen, and the connecting villages, and to aid them in withholding Abbeville and the county of Pontieu, and further, to cement with them certain alliances against me and my country in making them large offers greatly to my prejudice, and, in order to complete the whole, they are to come to Dieppe. Monseigneur, you may dispose of your own as you wish. But, Monseigneur, in regard to what concerns me, it seems to me that you would do better to leave my property in my hand than to be the instrument of putting it into the hands of the English or of any foreign nation. For this reason I entreat you, Monseigneur, that if such overtures or greater ones have been opened by your people, that you will not commit yourself to them in any manner, but will insist on their cessation, and that you will do this in a way that I may always have cause to remain your very humble servant, as I desire to do with all my heart. Above all, write to me your good pleasure, and I implore you, Monseigneur, if there be any service that I can render you, I am the one who would wish to employ all that God has given me to do it written at Namur, August 16th, your very humble and obedient subject, Charles. Then the Count proceeded to Dinant to inflict the punishment that the culprits had, to his mind, too long escaped. Camine calls this a strong and rich town, superior even to Liège. A comparison of the two sites shows, however, that this statement could hardly have been true at any time. Dinant lies at a narrow space between the Meuse and Highland, a lofty rock at one end of the town, dominating the river, is crowned by a fortress most picturesque in appearance. 
It is difficult to estimate how many inhabitants there actually were in the place in 1466, but there is no doubt as to their energy and character. As mentioned before, the artisans had acquired a high degree of skill in their specialty, and their brasswork was renowned far and wide. Pots and pans and other utensils were known as denanderies. The traffic in them was so important that Denant had had her own commercial relations with England for a long period. Her merchants enjoyed the same privileges in London as the members of the Hanseatic League, and an English company was held in high respect at Denant. The Brass Founders Guild ranked at Denant as the Drapers at Louvain and the Weavers at Ghent. As a, quote, great guild, they formed a middle class between the lower guilds and the bourgeois, end quote, the merchants and richer folk. In municipal matters, each of these three classes had a separate vote. As it happened, Denant had not been very ready to open hostilities against the House of Burgundy, though she was equally critical of Louis of Bourbon in his episcopal misrule. It was undoubtedly her rivalry with Bouvines of Namur that brought her into the strife. That neighbor had taunted her rival to exasperation, and the fact that it was safe under the Duke of Burgundy, and backed by him as Count of Namur, had brought a Burgundian element into the local contest. The incidents of the insult to Charles and the aspersion on his mother's reputation undoubtedly were due to an irresponsible rabble rather than to any action that could properly be attributed to the leading men. Further, it really seems probable that the weight attached to the insulting act never occurred to the respectable burghers until they heard of it from others, so insignificant were the participants in it as soon as it was realized that serious consequences might result from reckless folly the authorities were quite ready to separate themselves from the event and to arrest the culprits as common malefactors once indeed the prisoners were temporarily rescued by their friends and it seemed to burgundian sympathizers a suspicious circumstance that this happened just at the moment when there was renewed hope for help from louis the eleventh when convinced that such hopes were vain, the magistrates became seriously alarmed and ready to go to any length to avert Burgundian vengeance. Finally, the following letter was dispatched to the Duke of Burgundy. Quote, the poor, humble, and obedient servants and subjects of the most reverend father in God, Louis of Bourbon, Bishop of Liege, and your petty neighbors and boarders, the Burgomaster's Council, and folk of Dinant, humbly declare that it has come to their knowledge that the wrath of your grace has been aroused against the town on account of certain ill words spoken by some of the inhabitants thereof in contempt of your honorable person the city is as displeased about these words as it is possible to be and far from wishing to excuse the culprits has arrested as many as could be found and now holds them in durance awaiting any punishment your grace may decree as heartily and as lovingly as possible do your petitioners beseech your grace to permit your anger to be appeased holding the people of denant exonerated and resting satisfied with the punishment of the guilty inasmuch as the people are bitterly grieved on account of the insults and have as before stated arrested the culprits with further apologies for any failure of duty towards the duke of burgundy the petitioners humbly begged to be granted the same terms that Liège and the other towns had received. March 31st is the date of this humble document. Months of doubt followed before the terrible experience of August proved the futility of their pleas, to which the ducal family refused to listen, so deep was their sense of personal aggrievement. Long as it was since the Duchess had taken part in public affairs, she too had a word to say here. 
and she too was implacable against the town where any citizen had dared accuse her of infidelity to her husband and to the church whose interests were more to her than anything in the world except her son the petition was as unheeded as were all the representations of the would-be mediators again dinant turned in desperation to louis the eleventh and with assurances that after god his royal majesty was their only hope besought him from mere charity and pity to persuade his cousin of burgundy to forgive them apparently louis took no notice of this appeal dinant's last hope was that her fellow communes of liege would refuse to ratify the treaty unless she too were included the sole concession obtained by their envoys to charles in the winter had been a short truce afterwards extended to may fourteen sixty six during that summer the critical position of the little town was well known some sympathizers offered aid but it was aid that there was possible danger in accepting many of the outlaws from liege who had been expressly excluded from the terms of the peace had joined the ranks of a certain freelance company called the companions of the green tent as their only shelter was the interlaced branches of the forest to dinant came this band to aid in her defence at one time it seemed as though a peaceful accommodation might be reached but it fell through not yet were the citizens ready to surrender their charters franchises to the rescue was a frequent cry and no treaty was made philip long inactive resolved to assist at the reduction of this place in person too feeble to ride he was carried to the meuse in a litter and arrived at namur on august fourteenth then attended by a small escort only he proceeded to bouvines a splendid vantage point whence he could command a view of the scene of his son's intended operations as the crisis became imminent there were a few further efforts to effect a reconciliation when these failed the town prepared to meet the worst stories gravely related to duclerc represent the people of dinant goaded to actual fury of resistance by august seventh the burgundian troops made their appearance winding down to the river conspicuous among the standards and nobles from all philip's dominions were in evidence was the banner of the count of charolais displaying st george slaying the dragon on tuesday august nineteenth dinant was invested and the siege began within the walls the most turbulent element had gained complete control of affairs all thought of prudence was thrown to the winds from the walls they hurled words at the foe quote, is your old doll of a duke tired of life that you have brought him here to perish your count charlatel is a green sprout bid him go fight the king of france at montlaret if he waits for the noble louis or the liegeois he will have to take to his heels etc it was a heavy siege and the town was riddled with cannon-balls but there was no assault by the sixth day the magistrates determined to send their keys to the count of charolais and beg for mercy the captain of the great guild of coppersmiths jean de guerin tried to encourage the faint-hearted to protest openly against this procedure seizing the city colors he declared quote, i will trust to no humane sentiment i am ready to carry this flag to the breach and to live or die with you if you surrender i will quit the town before the foe enter it it was too late the capitulation was made when the keys were brought to charles he remembered that he was not yet duke and ordered them presented to his father in his stead and to his half-brother anthony was entrusted the task of formally accepting the surrender it was late in the evening when the bastard of burgundy marched in at first he held the incoming troops well under control 
but the stores of wine were easy to reach, and by the morning there were wild scenes of disorder. When Charles arrived, however, on the morrow, Tuesday, just a week after the beginning of the siege, lawlessness was checked with a strong hand. Any ill-treatment of women was peculiarly repugnant to him, and he did not hesitate to execute the sternest justice upon offenders. His entry into the fallen town was made with all the wanted Burgundian pomp. Nothing in the proceedings occurred in a headlong or passionate manner. A council of war was held, and the proceedings decided upon. The cruelty that was exercised was used in deliberate punishment, not in savage lawlessness. The personal insults to his mother and to himself rankled in the Count's mind. As one author remarks with undoubted reason, it is not likely that any of those responsible for the insult were among those punished. After the siege, quote, pitiable it was to see, for the innocent suffered and the guilty escaped, end quote. Certain rich citizens bought their lives with large sums, others were sold as slaves, or were hanged or beheaded, or were thrown into the Meuse. In the monasteries, life was conceded to the inmates, but that was all. All their property was confiscated. The Count of St. Paul, now Constable of France, tried to intercede for the citizens with Philip, who remained at Bovinia, but to no result. It might have been chance, or it might have been intentional, that at last flames completed the work of destruction. The abode of Adolphe of Cleves, at the corner of Notre Dame, was found to be on fire at about one o'clock in the morning of Thursday, August 28th. That Charles was responsible for this conflagration, Duclerc thinks is incredible. He would certainly have saved all ecclesiastical property, which was almost completely consumed. Indeed, Charles gave orders to extinguish the flames as soon as they were discovered, but everyone was so occupied with saving his own portion of booty that nothing was accomplished, and the town hall caught fire, and the church of Notre Dame. From the latter, some ornaments and treasures were saved, and the bones of St. Perpète, with other holy relics, were rescued by Charles himself, at risk to his own life. Quote, it was never known how the fire originated. Some say it was due to a defective flu. To my mind, concludes the pious historian, it was the divine will that Denat should be destroyed on account of the pride and ill deeds of the people. I trust to God who knows all. The duke's people alone lost more than a hundred thousand crowns value. End quote. Si fou Dinant, Dinant was, is the sum of his description four days after the conflagration. On September 1st, Philip, who had remained at Bouvinia while all this passed under the direction of Charles, took boat and sailed down to Namur. It was almost a triumph, that trip that proved one of the last ever made by the proud duke, and the procession on the river and the entry into Namur were closed by a humble embassy from Liège in regard to certain points of their peace. De Klerk gravely relates, by the way, that the Count of St. Paul's men had had no part in the plunder of Dinant. This was hard on the poor fellows. Therefore, Philip turned over to their mercies, as a compensation for this deprivation, the little town of Touin, which had been rebellious and then submitted. Touin accepted its fate, submitted to St. Paul, and then compounded the right of pillage for a round sum of money. Moreover, they promised to lay low their gates and their walls and those of St. Tron. In this way, it is said that the constable made ten thousand Rhenish florins. Still, both he and his men felt ill-compensated for the loss of the booty of Dinant. Charles continued a kind of harassing warfare on the various towns of Liège territory. The people of Liège themselves seemed to have varied in their humor towards Charles, sometimes being very humble in their petitions for peace, and again very insolent. 
as a rule this conduct seems to be traceable to their hope of louis support on september seventh there was one pitched battle where victory decided the final terms of the general peace and after various skirmishes and submissions charles disbanded his troops for the winter and joined his father at brussels End of chapter seven